The Christmas Thieves. Stave 3. Christmas Present. Baltus sat alone in the dock, awaiting two bells. I now wished I had allowed myself more time to recuperate. Why hadn't I said the second ghost would visit him at around four in the morning? The clock tower chimed, and Baltus waited, and waited, anticipation burning within. He found himself rising from his bed, his hand summoning flame to see about with, in case something was lurking in the dark. There was nothing. Cautiously, he opened his door and stepped out into the hallway, only to perceive a multicolored light emanating from the crack under the door to his living room. Bracing himself, he opened that door to reveal. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that, but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the lights, as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney, as the dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Baltus's time, or Marlowe's, or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped upon the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, suckling pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. Every single one of them was a construct of the illusion held in glistening corporeal form by my tiring will. I prayed he would not pluck and eat any of it, or I would have to spin an additional plate and conjure texture and flavor within his mind. In easy state upon the couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see. He was clad in red robes and a patchwork overcoat, and bore a mane of wispy grey hair upon his aged head. His face was lined and wrinkled with experience, and around the corners of his bright chestnut eyes were scrunched up little creases from his roguish smile. In the centre of his face was an enormous nose, and when I say enormous, I mean to imply most strongly that it looked like a fleshy pitted cricket ball and it gave his voice a gravity, a richness of which I am very familiar, because this giant was a large print edition of a wizard friend of mine, whose name here I will not speak. Come in, and know me better, man. I thundered. Baltus entered cautiously, and would not look me directly in the eye. I am the ghost of Christmas present. I pressed, insistent, but not unkind. Look upon me. He did so. I saw still this arrogant, angry man being forced to do what he must, not gladly, but now out of wearied duty. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. I've never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, 
elder brothers born in these later years? I don't think I have. Have you many brothers, Spirit? More than 1,800. I responded with relief that he was at least playing along with what I was feeding him. Spirit, conduct me where you will. If you have ought to teach me, let it be over with soon. I scowled at this. It wasn't taking hold. I was failing. Follow me, I said sternly, stepping down from the couch, diminishing in size as I did so, striding past him and through the open door. Are we not able to go there within the confines of the living room? Nope, I called back. We're going on a road trip. Within minutes, Baltus was sat in my cart beside me, warming himself with flame as I steered out into the silent black streets of London. The nag, drawing our vehicle onwards and biting his lip to keep from complaining, something he found immensely difficult. As we rolled, I began to work a more complex magic again, pulling misty memories from Baltus's head and throwing them up to create the shimmering walls of a suffused, pasted-over reality. I was drawing upon his Christmas's past, snowbound mornings traversing these very streets, but pieces were missing everywhere. When he walked, I realized, he kept his gaze forward and never stopped to take in the surroundings. They were not vivid like Camelot had been. Where are we? More pertinent would be, when are we? When, then? We are riding through London on Christmas morning, and it is today. His eyes narrowed, and he glanced about at the ephemeral figures rushing past. They cannot see us. But we should be able to see them. It's a surprise present. I was flailing now. This one was too much of a juggling act. I pulled from deep in Baltus's memory the last time he had visited with Freda and her husband Clarence, taking the nag along that route past the house of the Cartwrights that I had earmarked a day ago. Now came the really tricky part, as we pulled up to the dark, silent house, in the upstairs of which Freda and Clarence were sleeping through the long Christmas Eve. Baltus would have to see it as warm and flourishing and bustling with life. As a wizard, I am aware of certain eventualities in the timelines, certain variables. I had chosen this duart, Baltus, because I saw misery and death in his future. In fact, in most of his futures. This whole enterprise had been undertaken to see if I might nudge him into a state of mind that could prevent these dark shadows from overtaking him. Through his renewed perspectives on existence, his positive actions, he might, given his responsibilities, bless the lives of hundreds, thousands. I found a version of myself 13 hours down the timeline. I was standing in the house of Freda and Clarence, as they engaged in a post-dinner chat with their friends. I fixed on that possibility and tried my level best to express what I was seeing, to share it with Baltus. He said that Christmas was a humbug, as I live, cried Freda as the guests scoffed and shook their heads. I could feel the cold wooden seat of the cart under my backside, the chill north wind upon my cheek and only darkness upon my corporeal eyelids, and I pushed hard to immerse Baltus in what we were seeing and hearing. I have no patience with him, said Clarence, clearly concerned for his wife at having to deal with such a tyrant. 
Oh, I have. I am sorry for the poor devil. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, as always. Here, he takes it into his head to dislike us. And he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He loses a dinner. Indeed, he loses a very good dinner, said Clarence, supportively. At which Freda beamed and kissed him. Baltus flinched ever so slightly at this sight. And it was then that I realised Clarence was human. And that their friends were a mix of human, Duart, and even Akka. He loses some pleasant moments which could do him no harm. More pleasant companions than he might find in that office or that tower of his. But let me tell you this. She held up a finger sharply at all present and continued with grave, jolly solemnity. I shall not give up on him. In fact, I shall continue to defy him, for that is the way of things. I shall be there in that office, in a good temper, year after year, and saying, Uncle Baltus, how are you? When said like that, my darling, I cannot call your endeavours a waste, said Clarence. You do just that, and we shall keep that chair for him until the day he dies. Baltus glanced behind them to the recently vacated dinner table, on which sat a clean, untouched plate with knife and fork before an empty chair. I leaned in close and said quietly, There is more to bravery than fighting dragons. Baltus gritted his teeth. What else is there in this present? Plenty. You ought to try walking about more and actually look at your fellow men and women. Lead on, then. We were back on the cart, and before he could check his surroundings and look too closely, I wheeled the nag around and we made our way back to the Cartwright house. Again, I had to draw on future memories and resolved to visit Ian and his family a short while before he got back from his long, fruitless Christmas day at work, so that Baltus could see their meagre, delayed, but so very valued feast and the great excitement that surrounded it. Inside, Mrs. Cartwright, Mara, raised herself to her feet, decked out with inexpensive ribbons, which nonetheless made her look supremely festive. Baltus gasped. She was of the Akka race. Keep turning that spit, Bill. She called. The child nodded eagerly and rotated the little roasting goose above the flame, sniffing deeply and sighing contentedly as he did so. A half-breed, Baltus said in a strangled gasp, his voice laden with disgust. That, I replied with cold fury, is Ian's son. Bill's sisters, Holly and Chloe, raced past him, holding up paper decorations they had been working on all morning. Mara kissed them both upon their pale green foreheads. Lovely work, girls. Now, can you both go get some water from the pump? At this, the little girls squirmed visibly. All right, Mum, said Holly, and reluctantly took the pail she was offered. Be careful. Look after each other, their mother said gravely. All Akka children are in danger when they draw water in London. There are plenty of humans around who don't like sharing. Surely some kind of Akka-only pump is the answer. Ah, such a wise and considerate fellow, I replied. The illusion flickered once again. Trouble is, the city planning Duart in charge of where the pumps go won't pay for new Akka-only ones in order to make this dream of segregation a reality. 
and none of the local humans can agree on which punt they would give up. Sometimes Aka have to walk for miles on end to find a safe place. Under my glare, Baltus shut his trap. But it's that or go without water. Not that you'd care what goes on in the lives of Aka. A short while after his daughters had left, Ian came back through the door, his face bone-tired, but it lit up when he saw Mara, Bill, and the tiny child emerging from the wash house where she had been listening to the pudding singing in the copper. Ian embraced all of them, considerably more gingerly, with the smallest. And how did little M behave? He asked of Mara after the children scurried off. As good as gold and better. Somehow she gets thoughtful, sitting by herself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. She told me, coming home, that she hoped the people saw her in the church because she was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. I wish I could have been there. He looks so tired, Mara said, stroking his face as she looked down at him. No, I'm fine. I'll get this locked down me and uh, enjoy one night of good sleep. I still don't understand. If the rope factory's closed tonight, how come you went to go work at the tower? It's the way that job works, that's all. It's Baltus, is all. Ian has a second job. Baltus intoned, staring at the scene, still trying to shake the repulsion that his clerk was being embraced by an Akka. Why do you suppose that is? We pay him a living wage. It's adequate for a household of this... Oh. The realization dawned. The interracial marriage permission tax. Nearly a quarter of his wages. Why didn't he tell me? Baltus seemed genuinely shocked at last. Perhaps he thought you wouldn't be sympathetic to a man who shares his bed with a greenskin, who has sired half-breeds. Perhaps he was laboring under the misapprehension that a man who would fire one of his employees for clapping might just do something worse if he were the kind of fellow I'm looking at right now. Baltus was finally lost for words. The two girls raced through us, holding the full water pail aloft triumphantly, and upon carefully laying it down out of kicking distance, enthusiastically embraced their father. The family settled down to their strictly finite cornucopia of a dinner. Uh, said Ian, standing and raising his small glass of cooking sherry. I would like to propose a toast to Captain Baltus, the founder of the feast. Despite everything that had happened, Baltus looked up sharply at this. His eyebrows creased in a way I had not seen them do before now. Founder of the feast indeed, cried out Mara, reddening. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon and I reckon he'd choke on it. My dear, the children. It's Christmas Day. Baltus looked now at the youngest Cartwright. Em sat very close to her father's side upon her little stool. Ian held her withered little hand in his, as though he wished to keep her by his side and dreaded that she might be taken from him. Christmas night, more like. Mara continued, furious now. He's robbed you of us for maybe the... She broke off, and her eyes, moments before she wiped them hard, flicked across to M. I'll drink his health for your sake and the days, not for his. 
Long life to him. He'll be very merry, I have no doubt. To Captain Baltus. M called out. Founder of the feast. She had been gazing at all of this food, looking at her family so close and happy, and found herself grateful of whatever could have helped this to happen. She simply wanted the fighting to stop. And a Merry Christmas to all, she added. Spirit, said Baltus, with an interest that he had perhaps never felt before. Tell me if little M there will live. I closed my eyes and did not have to look far down this timeline. I replied with the heaviest of hearts, quite truthfully. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered, the child will die, and soon. Then again, if she's going to die, she'd better do it fast, all the quicker to decrease the surplus population. At this baleful portent of tiny, but significant doom, and at the very barbed quotation of his heartless words, that slight touch of zest he had only just displayed seemed to melt from him. That is unfortunate, said Baltus. I looked into his hard, tense, fierce face, gazing deep into those eyes. Even now he would not let it out. For one brief bloody second, I considered striking him dead on the spot, vaporizing his wretched carcass until all the cartwrights would discover in the snowy street outside their doorstep on Christmas morning would be the charred, smeared remnants of what had once been Ambrosius Baltus. This fury was intoxicating, and I realized simply spending an evening with this angry, angry man had left its mark upon me. If that was the case, why was Ian so gentle? Even the prisoners who were his charges condemned men and women I had seen him treat with dignity and consideration. I cast my mind back to Freda and her unfaltering determination to keep on trying. She had what I needed. The happy family had melted away. We now stood upon a bleak moor where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants, and water spread itself wheresoever it listed, or would have done so but for the frost that held it prisoner, and nothing grew but moss and coarse rank grass. Down in the west, the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant, like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. This was one of my memories. It matched Dickens' book. Look to those who have done you wrong, I said, with all the patience I could muster. Look to those you can help, and for the love of all that is holy, release, even for a moment, this death grip you have upon anger. I drew back to a great height, 
My life upon this globe is very brief. I began to fade, very deliberately stepping away from him. It ends tonight. But you cannot leave me here! Baltus cried out, shivering in the cold and struggling to inflame his hands. Invisible again, I stepped back within range of the nag as we watched Baltus huddle in the center of the desolate moor that I had summoned. You're going to need to bring out the big guns if you want the ghost of Christmas yet to come to have any kind of positive effect on that. The nag sneered. I nodded grimly. Oh, I have someone up my sleeve. That was Stave 3 of The Christmas Thieves. Ambrosius Baltus and the Nag, performed by Spencer Lee. Merlane Ian and the Ghost of Christmas Present, performed by Alexander Shaw. Mara, performed by Sharon Shaw. Holly, performed by Maureen Foley. And Little M, performed by Lyra Shaw. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Overture, specially composed for The Christmas Thieves by Gil Haim Steinberg. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Many thanks to our top-tier Patreon sponsors for the month of this re-release. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Junkius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns.